Welcome to a special episode of the Math Ed Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Otten, from the Department of Learning, Teaching, and Curriculum at the University of Missouri. At the recent PMENA conference held on the campus of Michigan State University, I attended the Working Group on Argumentation, Justification, and Proof, organized by Michelle Cirillo from the University of Delaware, Megan Staples from the University of Connecticut, Carl Costco from Kent State University, Jill Newton from Purdue University, and Keith Weber from Rutgers University. On day one of the working group, Keith Weber gave a short presentation and answered questions about proof research in mathematics education. I've captured part of the interactions from day one in episode 1519 of the podcast. On the current episode, you can hear the panel discussion from day two of the working group. The panel consisted of Kristen Bieta from Michigan State University, Anna Connor from the University of Georgia, and Pablo Mejia Ramos from Rutgers University. They spoke about their conceptualizations of argumentation, justification, and proof in their own research, and also took questions from the working group attendees. Next, you'll hear Kristen, then Anna, then Pablo answer a question about how they conceptualize the central constructs of their research, be it argumentation, justification, or proof, and in what ways those conceptualizations matter for their work with various stakeholders, such as researchers, teachers, and students. So in thinking about my response to this question, I actually was, um, my thought process related to something Florence Glanfield suggested that we all do when she made discussant remarks to the first plenary, which is that when we do our research, that we're very clear and explicit about our commitments. And I remember what got me into this work around justification and proof was that I was coming out of the classroom into a PhD program. And I was interested in proof because, for me, helping students to explain their reasoning, to justify arguments, to even create proofs, was the way I could get students who were struggling learners, the ones who maybe were in a developmental math class or who were seniors in lowest level algebra one, to actually engage again with mathematics because no one had really asked them and pushed them to make sense of what they were doing. They were just reinforced to practice skills and procedures. So I just want to articulate that was my commitment and has continued to be my commitment is to figure out how we create classrooms where more and more students do this as part of everyday practice. But it was really interesting, too, because I did an exercise of just looking back at my own papers on proof. The very, I think, first one that was ever published in any sort of form was for a 2006 PMENA proceedings. And I noticed the title says, Does Proof Prove? in question mark, and there was some other stuff following it. And what's funny to me about that is not only am I just explicit, I mean, I was talking about middle school students and their work, so I'm just saying this was proof, but I'm putting together proof and the action of proof, which we've been kind of puzzling around. Uh, So it was funny that my thinking at that time wasn't articulating any concerns about that conceptualization. And then as I moved through uh, my graduate studies and beyond, when I was an early faculty member, I started to see a move away from my work talking about proof and more talking about justification. And now my papers are very much focused on argumentation. And so I think the reason for the shift was not only, I I think my commitments to teachers and classroom practice were becoming more clear. I work mainly in middle school and high school classrooms. Much of my research is in middle school classrooms where throwing out the word proof is something that 
some middle school teachers may have never even experienced as learners. So it doesn't really make sense to have a conversation with them about proof if it's not um, something that they would even articulate as a part of their teaching practice. But I also think that the choice of term that we use is very much dependent on what we are studying. So for instance, um, the conception advanced by Gabrielle Stilianidis about reasoning and proving hyphenated, I have a hard time working with that if I'm doing like work in classroom observations. But if I'm doing curriculum analysis, I feel like it's a very helpful term for defining the analytic framework that I'm using. So I often feel like, in a way, I kind of pick and choose depending on what the object of study is and what makes sense. But for me now, argumentation is the most central construct in my work. I think part of this may be because of how we're seeing the intersection of the standards for other content areas intersecting with standards for mathematics. We now have the next generation science standards where argumentation is a focal practice as it is in the common core standards. And again, part of my shift away, I think too, away from proof is that a lot of the work I was doing that emphasized proof was all pre-common core. And in the principles and standards, that process standard was reasoning and proof. And that was also at the time we could talk more about that, but that was an interesting use of, of proof in the standards. So I want to get to the, the question about how do I see these processes and objects intersecting among communities. So I have to say I'm, I'm frustrated myself, but I'm not seeing a lot of this in the research about conceptualizing what these terms mean from the perspective of the people, say, we are doing research with teachers and students, and by talking about a, a quote from a teacher that I talked with that still resonates with me. When I was had finished watching um, something that went on in our classroom, and I asked her, okay, was that proof that the student, was that a proof? And she said, oh, no, it's not a proof, but it was a proof for them, for students. And I thought that was really interesting how she recognized the difference, but was willing to sit with that difference. And we need to understand what the teacher perceives of the, that difference and how they negotiate the balance of that in their practice. So. I just had one uh, clarifying question. So you mentioned in your you know, time over the years, moving from proof to justification to now maybe argumentation. Do you view that as those concepts were fixed and you have moved through them? Or have you been kind of studying the same thing, but you're now conceptualizing it in a different way? Uh, I definitely don't think those concepts are fixed. And I recently did a review of the last 10 years of the international group PME papers. And we looked at just argumentation and proof papers, and we saw the shift in, in some of those conceptions and, and the clarification around some of those uh, conceptions. But I think it's also just me getting better again at knowing what my commitments are and getting clearer at articulating those commitments. So I was doing some learning as well as the field doing some work. So my work focuses on um, argumentation, in particular, teachers' support for argumentation. But I also study teachers' conceptions of proof as they relate to their support for argumentation in their classrooms. And I really liked what Kristen said about paying attention to what teachers think about proof. And I think that's a very important part of what I'm doing as I try to understand both 
what teachers believe about proof and how that relates to what they do in their classrooms when they are supporting students in making arguments. My focus on argumentation began with a conviction that reasoning and proof are very important in classrooms and that we don't know a lot about how to incorporate reasoning and proving into secondary classrooms. So again, it started with those 2000 principles and standards where that was the process standard that was important to me. So in my view, engaging students in mathematical argumentation in appropriate ways can lead to their engagement in proof more naturally, although we don't really know how that might happen. So I have a pretty broad definition of argumentation. I consider um, argumentation to occur anytime someone makes a claim and supports it with evidence. This allows me to identify many episodes of argumentation in a class, even those that include warrants that rely on authority or intuition or something else that we might not specifically want them to use. I also use an adaptation of Toulmin's model to conceptualize each episode of argumentation, reconstructing the argument and surrounding teacher actions from what happens in the classroom. So I look at the claims, the data, the warrants that are made public in mathematics classrooms, as well as the teacher moves that surround this discourse. So this conceptualization of argumentation allows me to focus on the ways teachers support argumentation in their classrooms. And when I say um, how teachers support argumentation, I mean how they directly contribute to arguments, the questions they ask that prompt different parts of arguments, and other supportive actions such as rephrasing or validating student contributions or recording elements on the board. So one of the questions we were asked was why does this matter? So in my work with prospective and early career teachers, I have found that these teachers are often intimidated by the idea of proving in their classes. They may describe intentions to occasionally include proof in their classes, but they often hedge these intentions with reference to what others in their building will do or what their state standards require. However, when I introduce argumentation to prospective teachers and talk about it with early career teachers, they are much more apt to see it as something they're willing to do in their classes. In fact, they see Toolman diagrams as helpful tools to think about argumentation in their classes. For instance, I recently showed one of my participants a diagram of an argument from one of her classes. We had previously looked at video from her class. She had identified claims and evidence that she and her students contributed, and this had happened over a series of interviews. And then in the most recent interview, um, I showed her this diagram and asked her what she thought about this representation of the argumentation in her class. And she said, I can see how my questions prompted which parts. If I had asked different questions, I might have gotten more warrants. So she was already looking at this way of looking at argumentation and saying this is helpful in being able to see more about how I could get students to make better arguments. So you mentioned uh, argumentation as being a, a really way to build these things that can later move towards proof. And then when you're talking about the teacher actions, is that teacher actions to just get the argumentation happening or are some of those teacher actions to build the argumentation toward proof? I think both. So what I've currently studied already is just in general actions that surround argumentation and not differentiating between argumentation and then the more formal arguments that might be proofs. But I think one of the things that I can build towards is identifying 
what is that progression? How can you help students move from arguments into more formal, more deductive ideas? Uh, okay, so uh, I'll go straight to um, my uh, vague uh, conception of, of the objects that we're, we're asked to talk about. Uh, I see the, the set of proofs as being a subset of the set of uh, mathematical justifications and, and the set of mathematical justifications to be a subset of arguments in mathematics. And the way that works is that an argument for me is quite generally a series of statements for or against something, kind of similar to what Anna was saying. And these include uh, things like uh, arguments by appeal to authority, right? So similar to what you were saying. So this is something very appealing. Uh, argumentation is a really broad field, and the notion of argument allows you know that kind of thing to be counted and studied uh, in those ways. Uh, whereas a justification for me wouldn't include that, uh, an appeal to authority. Uh, I see justification, and again, this is just my perspective. Uh, this is the way that I've operationalized it in my work as providing some sort of justification, uh, so some sort of uh, reasons for, right? Uh, so an appeal by authority argument is not providing any reasons for why the claim is true. Or, you know. And finally, and I, know, I am aware that this is kind of a, a cop-out, I usually do that in my presentations where I get to the point where I say, uh, I don't actually define proof. Uh, this is a really you know, difficult topic in the philosophy of mathematics. And you know, if you want to go and think about it for years, you know, there's a whole field uh, in it. But essentially, the idea is that a proof is, is, is a particular type of justification that has uh, field-dependent restrictions. So uh, I do imagine justifications that uh, become proofs uh, when they meet different types of restrictions in different settings, let's say. So if you're in working in knot theory, then certain you know, uh, representation system is okay, whereas if you're working in abstract algebra, maybe it wouldn't, it wouldn't right? So. So I want to do a little bit better than that for proof, and, and, and so I, I went to my uh, dissertation and got this, this little diagram uh, um, that I, I included in, in the first chapter. And it was my attempt at making sense of uh, how the literature talked about, about proof, and this is very consistent with the idea that Keith presented yesterday about uh, cluster concepts. Uh, so the idea is that uh, proof is discussed in the literature uh, focusing on different facets, and, and, and these were kind of the three main facets that I could see um, uh, being kind of put in the, in the foreground. The, the cognitive aspect, and that included things like, you know, as Keith was saying yesterday, uh, you know, seeing proof as something that is convincing to a person, a mathematician, something that is surveyable, comprehensible, uh, something that a mathematician can understand. Uh, formal, uh, you know, there's this aspect about, you know, that it's a non-amplitive uh, deductive argument, you know, it's based on logic, you know, that kind of thing. And then social, uh, uh, people who discuss proof in terms of, uh, well, uh, it's an argument that is sanctioned in, in, a, uh, in a community. Uh, it may change through time. You know, the standards change. It changes from uh, one group of mathematicians to another, and so on and so forth. So there. Uh, that's, that's hopefully uh, a kind of a, a little bit better than just saying it's a particular type of argument. Uh, uh, okay, so that's in terms of the objects. Uh, uh, in terms of the processes, this is something that I... Uh, um, has helped uh, uh, me organize kind of all, all the stuff that I do around argumentation in, in, in mathematics, so uh, hopefully uh, it will be uh, for you as well, uh, or you see some value in it. I see argumentative activities are goal, as goal-oriented activities, so what I care about is I say, okay, what is the initial state of the activity, what kind of operations are allowed, and what is your, what is your goal, uh, right? So let me give you an example of one of those argumentative activities in mathematics. So you have the estimation of truth. So what it's given is a particular conjecture. You can see a conjecture like this one. And then the idea, what you need to, to do is to assess you know, the extent to which you think this conjecture is, is true or not, right? And, and maybe provide an argument for or against it. 
So that's one um, what argumentative activity. What other argumentative activities are there? Well, I put them around three main main topics or three main areas. You either constructing an argument in mathematics, reading one or presenting one, and then depending on what you're given and what you're asked to do, what your goal is in the activity, then you have things like exploration of a problem, estimation of the truth of a conjecture, which is the one that I just illustrated, justification of a statement, uh, where a statement is given and you're asked to justify it. You may also be given a, an argument and be asked to comprehend it, or maybe your your job is to evaluate it. And similarly, you can be given a, a specific argument, and then maybe your goal is to persuade a given audience, you know, something that happens in classrooms, or to explain to a given audience. Or as a student, uh, you have an argument, and your goal is to demonstrate to your teacher that you that you understand it. So you know that's 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 the, that particular activity. And you can do that a little bit further, you know, finer grain. So one type of justification of a statement is proving that statement. So, you know, within the restrictions of the field that you're working with. And again, evaluation, it depends on the particular criteria that is given to you. Maybe your job is to validate it, you know, is it approved or not? Or maybe it's just to, you know, say to what extent you think the thing is, is persuasive. And uh, we went through the literature a few years ago and kind of went and looked at, at the type of tasks that were given to participants and whether it was of one type or, or another. How this has helped me, again, is, is kind of uh, organize my own work. Uh, I've done stuff giving proof that tasks to students. I've done uh, work where I ask students to read a proof and then just give them a proof comprehension test. I've done work uh, with mathematicians asking them to, you know, to determine whether or not a particular argument is approved or to say how persuasive they are. Uh, and recently, we've been studying the way that mathematicians present proofs in lectures. Uh, so, yeah, for me, it's just kind of a, a, a map uh, of, of, you know, of the different kinds of studies that I'm doing. It also help, uh, helps me parse the literature. And Boero, in the 1999 um, debate in the, in the newsletter of proof, was uh, describing prov proving as something that involves a bunch of different kinds of uh, activities, starting from the exploration of the conjecture to trying to estimate whether that conjecture is true or not, to then uh, constructing the proof, to then cleaning it up for publication, to then maybe even formalizing it. So proving in the literature for some people, it was just a bunch of different uh, activities that I was uh, identifying under construction, right? And so when you went and looked at those tasks that you have in the literature, and I have three here, uh, so the first one is from Cohen Rothman in the, in the in 94, you can see that this is a task that actually is asking a bunch of things. It's asking students to explore the problem situation, then to create a conjecture, and then to prove it, right? The second one is from a paper from Keith and Lara, and this is a proof of this proof task where you're asked to estimate the truth of the conjecture and then prove it or disprove it. So you're doing two things. And then the last one is a just typical example of a proof that task, where you're just giving a statement that's the initial situation, and all you're in, the goal here is just to construct a proof, whatever that is in that context. Right now we actually want to hear one more thing from the panel members. So we're going to ask them one more question, and this time we're asking them, from your perspective, where is the field now with its understanding of these processes of justification, argumentation, proof? Where is the field in our knowledge of how to foster them in classrooms? And where do you see the field in terms of what we know about supporting teachers to organize their classroom in ways that promote these things? So we're going to hear again from each of the panelists their thoughts on this, and then we'll be able to have some more discussion and some cross-talks. Okay, so... Um I mentioned earlier that I worked this summer on a review of PME papers for the past 10 years, so I'm using that experience to ground my answer in this question. So a few things that we took away from this task. After, it was um, myself, Andrea Stelianidis, and Francesca Morselli, and we kind of divided up uh, the PME paper somewhat randomly, and what we all kind of concluded is if, if we used 
the phrase argumentation and proof that captured all of the work that was going on. Uh, so that was definitely uh, a way to be, uh, describe the focus. But we also found that these three themes capture the bulk of the work. Research on student conceptions and learning, classroom-based research, and research on t- teacher knowledge and development. So I was tasked with reviewing um, work on research on student conceptions and learning, and overwhelmingly what I will say is we have definitely moved forward in the field in understanding the process of exemplification and students' uses of examples in argumentation, justification, and proof. Uh, That seemed to be by far and away uh, the most kind of popular topic in which to be doing research among the the papers in the past decade. But we were just discussing here a little bit about the notion of the importance of being explicit about our conceptions of what is an argument in our work, what is a justification, what is a proof. My own review of those papers suggests that we've really gotten a lot better at being explicit, but um, Anna raised the issue, yeah, I think we've gotten a lot better at being explicit, but we're still really kind of hedging around what is proof. And I would say that I would definitely agree, especially in work that is elementary, middle, or secondary, that we're really still struggling to define what is proof in those contexts. But again, at the university level research, I think there's still many, many um, opportunities for debate. But I did want to say what we also all agreed was missing from the papers that we reviewed. There's not a lot of work on curriculum and how uh, these particular issues play out in, in curriculum materials. There's not as much work as maybe we would like on fostering participation in classroom argumentation. That has kind of fallen away um, because I think, I, I looking at Megan and some of her work around equitable participation and the role of justification in that is, I mean, she was my academic hero. She doesn't know this, but a lot of that work I looked to as um, really important for um, my own work, too. And then the other thing that we, we found across the board, across these themes, very, not that much on interventions for building students' capacity and engage in argumentation and proof. So we're coming to understand, like I said, how students generate proof, how they use examples to generate proof, but now we need to take it a step further. What does that mean for developing interventions in classrooms to improve students' conceptions of proof and their ability to generate arguments and proofs? So, and universally, too, not as much work at the lower grade levels, elementary, than secondary, of course, but that's that's to be expected, I think. So, um, coming to the question of where the field is with its understanding of these, I would say, yes, we've gotten a lot more clear on what they are. Maybe we don't agree, and there's still some fuzziness about some of it, but at least when it comes to argumentation, we usually specify what we're talking about when we're talking about that. The questions, though, of how to foster these activities in classrooms, I think we have descriptions of what it looks like when there is argumentation and even productive argumentation in classrooms. We have a lot of descriptions of that. And we have a lot of descriptions about what happens when people are proving, whether it's individually or in a classroom context and things like that. But I don't think we really know what it means for a teacher to learn how to foster these activities in classrooms. So we know what it looks like when they're doing it well. 
um, but we don't really know how they got there. And so that's one of the things that in my research, that's what I'm working on is looking at how do teachers learn to support their students in making arguments and hopefully eventually in into proving. But this supporting teacher learning of these pedagogies, I think, is something that as a field we really need to look hard at to figure out how to assist teachers in learning to do these things. And I think that's one of the directions that we really need to look at. Um, okay, so I, I, I wanted to talk about, I guess, uh, two things uh, with respect to this question. One is um, with respect to that debate that I was talking about in the late 90s, 19, you know, it was, I think 1999. There was this big debate uh, about, you know, well, Duval saying uh, argumentation is completely different to prove, uh, you know, doesn't make any sense to talk about, and then this was the other position, that you could, you know, transition, you could have students transition from their argumentation activities into their proving activities, and that this could sometimes be quite helpful, and what is called the, the cognitive unity uh, hypothesis. And what I have seen uh, through the last few years is that uh, by working on, on, on better defining what each one of, 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 of these researchers meant or mean by, by, by these words, uh, there has been some, some progress. And, and I think that an example of that is the work of uh, Bettina Pedemonte uh, that actually uh, you know, gives a little bit more detail about the, con the cognitive unity hypothesis. And now they're talking about uh, you know, not only content distance in between arguments and proofs, but structural distances and so on and so forth. So I think there's a little bit more defining definitely that, than there was when I, when I got into the field. Uh, the second thing that, I, that I'll uh, say I think is important, or at least in our subfield in, in undergraduate method, is that during the last few years we have learned a lot about how mathematicians behave around this notion of proof uh, based on empirical research. Not long ago, the only thing that we had was this caricature of, of what you know everybody imagined mathemat mathematicians doing mathematics, what that looked like. And then maybe the the few mathematicians who actually talk about how they do work, just just those those uh, self you know reflections on, on their own practice. But recently we we have much more um, you know kind of empirical evidence on on how mathematicians behave around this concept. And 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 one one of the things that is happening is that stuff that was considered to be really bad when we saw it in students, we're seeing it in mathematicians. And so we're like, well, then okay, maybe it wasn't that bad that students were you know using examples and you know or you know taking into account the authority uh, of the uh, you know the author of the argument when they were um, evaluating a, a given argument. So yeah, and I'm not saying that you know this is the only thing that we should be doing. That you know we need, really need to understand how mathematicians behave around proof because that's what we want for everybody. Uh, that's not what I'm saying, but it's definitely something that has changed through the last few years that I think is important. Um, one one of those studies, I mean, for example, and we were just discussing a few minutes earlier that you know we're not so sure that even for very simple proofs, mathematicians agree whether the uh, purported proofs whether they're valid or not, and and that you know that says something to us about you know any attempt that, that we that we make to actually just kind of define proof right yeah. so yeah anyway so now i'm just going to open up the floor to uh, any of the specific panelists or if you have a question for the panel overall so i guess one question i have is that sort of proof could also be regarded as a discovery process you know as a method of investigation and so on and i don't think anyone's really commented on that in either you know their the way they organize the their you know layering of argumentation, justification, and proofs, or in, in what they said. So could anyone sort of comment on proof as sort of a means of discovery or as a path to knowledge about things? 
Uh, sure. So, um, <laughs> I, I think you're right. Um, I, I don't. I don't know exactly what. Yeah, what that looks like. I don't think that's very well researched. How that happens. Um, you know, I imagine kind of a mathematician or a student you know, going on a, on a proving activity and suddenly finding out something that they, you know, were not aware of. But yeah, so that's the other part that that because it hasn't been uh, researched much, that's the kind of and, and since the my priority was kind of organizing what was what had been done, then maybe that's one of the reasons why it's not there. But um, but yeah, it's been a, a, that was one of the one of the things that the Villiers, for example, included in, in into his framework of, of one of the purposes for for what proof could do. But yeah, I guess I I want to respond from the perspective of like a middle school or secondary classroom, uh, especially in classrooms like. I'm not talking about a high school geometry class where they may be doing unit on proof, as is the case sometimes. When you said proof is a discovery process, that really resonates with me in my own experience, say, in my master's program. But it doesn't... I wonder from a middle school student's perspective what exactly they're discovering. That would be one thing that would be interesting to to examine um, from that lens because I think for some students... It's still just about I'm doing work to get answers, but the work of a classroom teacher who's really invested in incorporating reasoning and improving opportunities in the class, it's more about helping them understand what they're discovering is why this stuff makes sense and how it's a system, you know, and how these ideas connect together and that sort of thing. But... Um, I would say that often the teacher's idea of what they're discovering and the student's idea of what they're discovering are completely different. Coming from different mathematical backgrounds from the United States and from Israel, we had realized that working with students from these different backgrounds, especially at the college level, they brought in a lot of different things and oftentimes students from outside the United States are much better at um, explaining reasoning, justifying, or proving um, things are much quicker at picking those up than students from the United States. And I was wondering if you guys had thoughts on how that is processed at an undergraduate level. How what is processed? Well, so how, why there might be that stark contrast between oh, okay. coming from a different country or coming from the United States, or if this is just, you know, obviously a small sample size, so maybe this right. isn't happening nationally, but from my experience at least, that's been pretty, right. pretty different. So, I mean, one thing I can say is that the programs look completely different in different countries, right. uh, mathematics programs. Uh, so I, I did my, my PhD in England, for instance. And in England, the first course that you take is, is analysis, whereas here in the U.S. you take analysis in your third year, whatever, right? Uh, and so the idea is that somebody who enters the program, um, the ma- mathematics programs in England, and I think in Germany is similar, you have already kind of done the introduction to proof course or whatnot. So, yeah, I think it's just different... Different. Even at a secondary level, you think, like coming into before... Yeah, so the kind of stuff that they do... What do they call them? The A-levels in England, uh, uh, which would be the equivalent of, uh, I don't know, like the AP courses. They're they're to that level, so that they're preparing students to be able to take analysis on the first course, as as a first course. I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on where you see it articulated or what you think the understanding is of the role of, insert your own word, argumentation, justification, or or proof in the K-12 curriculum. And I'll, I'll tell you where this is coming from that it's usually gotten into the conversation because it comes out through standards. It comes out through the mathematical side of things, saying this is content we need to learn. 
but there's also enough kind of around it that sort of says, well, there, there's other reasons to engage this as a, as a practice. So I was wondering if you could sort of comment on that, or also are there documents that we can turn to for some sort of guidance along that? Like clearly we have the Common Core positioning argumentation in a certain way, mm -hmm. but are there other documents that position it maybe more in the K-12 context for reasons other than as a learning outcome? I can't point you to specific documents off the top of my head, but I do know that argumentation in general has been something that has been more and more studies studied across the curriculum. So there are, I went to AARA last year and went to argumentation sessions in social studies, in science, in language and literacy. And the goal of each of these was to get the students to base decisions on evidence and to either articulate them verbally or in a written way. So one possible extra outcome, other than the mathematical goals that we might have, might be to connect across the curriculum in having students base their claims on evidence and to be able to connect with other subject areas. And thinking about your question, for some reason what popped into my head was actually writings by teachers, like Maggie Lampert's book of her work in the classroom, and um, actually a really nice piece that um, Marty Schnapp, one of the panelists from today's plenary, and Dan Chazen have written about his work, how he approaches his work in his calculus classroom, about how the use of justification and argumentation in those classrooms it's about a learning outcome, but it's also about students having agency mm -hmm. in the classroom and having a voice um, in creating and discussing the mathematics that, that it comes to the table. So I think that is an important, for me, important role of, of justification of slash argumentation in schools. Uh, could you speak a bit to uh, proof as it is written versus proof mm -hmm. as it is generated? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, if you've got some proof of something in abstract algebra, is this how the mathematician came up with the proof? Well, probably not. Sort of like pulling back the veil uh, of the maybe the messiness that went on in constructing it that's maybe hidden from the final written product. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, so I, th I, think, I think that, yeah, there's been more of an awareness of, of that distinction, and, and I think usually what happens is now, now when people refer to proving verb as opposed to proof, they include all, all of that, right? So proving could include a lot of informal reasoning, for instance, whereas a proof itself will, wouldn't. So, yeah. I really like the question because I feel like it's one of those things that really trips up students, believe it or not, because it's really, they get caught up as, what do I write down? Is this okay to write down? Is this going to be acceptable? Mm. And, you know, it's, it's not a given that they understand that what we're really trying to get at is their thinking process. Um, it's very much like, do I write complete sentences? That sort of thing. And that, I think, gets kind of tangled in what we really want them to be doing. So, so I'll just share briefly. Uh, I was in a classroom observing a student teacher and some small groups of students were having a really difficult time completing what should have been like a pretty simple proof. And in observing them to figure out what was going on, what I saw was they were literally trying to write down the first statement, then the first justification, yeah. then the second yeah. statement. And they thought that they had to actually write it in order from start to finish. And they didn't realize that, no, there's this process where you mess around, you kind of figure it out, then you 
kind of transcribe it or write down the argument. And they didn't realize that there's this play, there's this proving uh, that happens separate from writing it down. And they were even doing things like writing down, okay, we need justification number three. Let's just look through all the possible theorems and things that we have and see if any of them can be plugged in there. They're literally just trying to go through each of them in order. That was my high school geometry experience. I mean, I, I'm looking at Michelle because I know she's been in a lot of high school geometry classrooms, and to me that was, it was just like, okay, what am I plugging in? I know what I write down first, I know what comes to the end, and then just plugging it in. So. I was in a classroom once where after the teacher introduced two-column proof the first day, the next day he started it off saying, okay, I know that students have a lot of questions and, about how this works, and one of the questions was, how big do I make the T? No. <laughs> was what the burning concern <laughs> was. Two columns. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is showing my own conceptions of these words. I'm still trying to think about how they interact together. It seems like argumentation, I, I see multiple people, and it's greater than or equal to two, and then something like proof doesn't necessarily have to have an audience. So it's this contrast between kind of a collective versus <coughs> in that tower, doing mathematics by yourself. So I'm just think, wondering, what do you think about the, the audience <coughs> of these words, verbs? I think argumentation, while when I talk about it, I often talk about it in classrooms, and I think Kristen was talking about it in the same way, that it doesn't necessarily have to be that you can construct an argument by yourself. And likewise, I think when you're thinking about a proof, you might be constructing it by yourself, but I think there is an implicit audience, that there's someone that you're constructing it for, even if you're sort of writing it for yourself. There's this internal dialogue going on about whether or not you're convinced by what you're writing and things like that. So I think, I personally don't think of them as proof is individual and argumentation is collective. One, one thing that I'll add, I completely agree. One thing that I'll add is, is, is that I think that some of the uh, um, activities that we perform around proof change depending on what the audience is. Uh, in, in undergraduate mathematics, you have, it's very common for students to ask, to be talking about what is enough as for a proof for that professor, but not for that one. Um, you know, because they learn what kind of you know uh, expectations these different professors have. So yeah, it's just something to take into account as a, in, in terms of research. That if you're interpreting somebody's somebody's behavior, you have to uh, kind of know what their goal is, and within that, it may be something related to the audience, the specific audience that they're thinking about. Quickly, I wanted to ask a question that was from yesterday. So. Where does reasoning fit in? Kristen mentioned it a little bit, but where does reasoning fit in? And then where does the process of defining fit in, in your mind? I guess I'll start since you brought that I mentioned it. Um, reasoning, to me, it's kind of, it's a big umbrella. All of these activities fit in with reasoning processes or um, products of engaging in reasoning. So it, it's, it's kind of a step back. Defining, I'm glad you mentioned that because it is vital to the act of engaging in argumentation. If you aren't defining, if you aren't clear about your definitions, then it makes it very hard, I think, to construct arguments that are convincing and for others to understand um, what your argument is, is trying to prove. So I think that defining is... It's, it's getting a little bit, I mean, we're definitely seeing a lot of work around defining the practice of defining that's it's important in the process. Yeah, so I agree also that uh, reasoning in my mind is kind of just this, you know, larger 
uh, said that kind of a, an, a, our ability to reason is kind of what allows us to engage in these different activities we were talking about. And yeah, there's some in interesting intersections with with defining. I agree that there's kind of more papers coming out on the on the on the subject, but yeah, I still think it's just beginning, and I, I, I agree that it's really interesting. Um, I just want to ask, like, is there any relationship between uh, inductive reasoning and argumentation? I think there is. Um, I think that you can have inductive reasoning in argumentation and the different structure of the argument might tell you that you are reasoning inductively as opposed to deductively or abductively. Mm -hmm. like how much uh, inductive reasoning uh, we can allow in a geometry uh, proof? <laughs> <laughs> What, what kind of answer do you expect? <laughs> Fifty percent. Like I, I, every time I found like geometry proof as a very like deductive kind of reason. Like mm -hmm. there are yeah. steps, and students are supposed to like follow those steps and at the end prove. Mm -hmm. But like, is there like can we change our mind and let the students explain more about those process and still accept it as a, like a well-written proof in a college level? J just the inductive argument as accepted as a proof. Ah, I think I understand what you're saying. I think, yeah, this is this is very interesting. So one of the, the uh, activities that I d described was a demonstration of validity, uh, because I think that's what students are doing. Uh, mm -hmm. Students are not really justifying when they're writing a proof for a professor. They're demonstrating that they know the proof, yeah. right? That's, th that's their goal. Some students actually probably, if, if they know a step, they may not need to, you know, kind of write much about it. But if they do, then, you know, that's demonstrating to their, their reader, their professor, that, that, that that's happening. And I think it's, it's important to, I mean, I have started doing it in the transition to proof course that I teach to kind of explain this to students that their job is actually to demonstrate to me that they understand this proof. And by doing that, I think there is a change of behavior where they're, they may be doing some of that, where they say, like, well, I don't know if for points, you know, or grading, but they could include some, in, you know, informal reasoning to justify, you know, a particular step in the sense that that demonstrates that they understand it in some all the different way that the professor may value, right? They're not just pushing symbols, let's say. But, yeah. Mm. So we were talking a little earlier about uh, technology and how it's uh, changed what like, even counts as a proof, like the computer-aided proof is a newfound thing, which is now okay in the mathematical community, and also how it's kind of changed what the proving process looks like. Every mathematician has a computer in their office, and there's a lot of sort of exploring on the, in the process of proving that's not getting done on pen and paper. They're generating examples using Maple or whatnot. And so the technology has changed both what a proof is and how a proof gets made. And that sort of hasn't sort of come up in this discussion at all. And I was hoping you guys could comment on that or where it should be in our research. I think maybe you don't accept technology maybe for the proving process, not for the final product because you know the, you know arguing about the role of technology yeah, I don't know if it, well, I was going to answer something, but uh, a little bit different than what you just ended with. But what I was going to say is, 
they have new tinkering tools, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a part of the process that we don't show students even through undergraduate studies. And I think that it's really important to talk about how these tools are used to tinker, and we may not need to use those tools to tinker if we're just in an intro to proof course, but it's, it's illustrating that that tinkering happens, that example uh, generation happens to make sense of the phenomena and, and get clearer about it. So I think that um, I'm, I think it's important to share that part. Now, uh, the last part about whether or not we should accept a technological or like a, a computer proof, I'm not going to step into that discussion. <laughs> I, I'm not, that's not my expertise. <laughs> I, I think we can very strategically use, for instance, dynamic ge geometry software to illustrate the importance of examples and also to build, I mean, there are studies out there that show you can use them to help students see a need to prove something that you can generate all of these examples, you can tinker around, you can play with it, and it's it's a good place to play with it, but then um, you can also say, oh, look, a proof is needed because we can have all of these things, but what about this one? So... Yeah, I think um, um, this whole area is fascinating to me. I mean, the whole notion that, that we have a field of experimental mathematics and that mm -hmm. people are saying that we're, we're producing theorems at a faster rate that we can prove them in the sense that, you know, the technology is good enough that we know these things are true, but we just don't have, you know, we can work fast enough to actually go and prove them. I think that's fascinating. And obviously it has made a big deal in the, in the mathematical community. In a few years ago, there was a big conference in London about this, you know, like major, you know, famous mathematicians got together, the Royal Society organized this to kind of discuss what, what this means for proof in mathematics when, when these kind of uh, proofs are being, uh, are being produced. But um, yeah, I don't know, it's kind of a, also an obscure field, so I don't know if I want to <laughs> go into it. <laughs> All right, well, we are going to get a preview of tomorrow's working group session, but let's thank the panel. Thanks for listening to this special episode featuring Kristen Bieta, Anna Connor, and Pablo Mejia Ramos. I also wanted to mention a comment that Keith Weber made right after I stopped recording. With regard to the question about how definitions fit into the arguing or proving process, Keith said that people can argue, and often do argue, without attending to the precise definitions of their terms. But you cannot prove without attending to the definitions of your terms. Anyway, that's all I have from day two. If you haven't done so already, please listen to episode 1519 from this same working group. And two quick plugs. If you're interested in a master's degree in math education, we have a great online program at the University of Missouri where everyone gets in-state tuition. Visit online.missouri.edu slash mathmed for more information. And if you're looking for useful videos of math teaching, then check out secondarymathvideos.com. That's secondarymathvideos.com. I am thankful for all of you who listen to the podcast.